Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, found on page 1206 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. We'll also be reading from the Belgian Confession, Article 36. That's found on page 196 in the back of your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we turn to your word and read of a call of submission, a call to submit ourselves to those who we recognize and see are not even believers, and yet a call by which we can give glory to you in our obedience. Let us hear your word in a submission, a submission to accept and to respond to it with obedience and belief, all for the purpose of your glory, that your name would be spread, that we would even count our lives, our rights, our civil rights and our civil liberties as a rather small cost to pay for a greater witness for you, for the glory due to your name. And we ask this in that name of our Savior. Amen. We'll begin reading first from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Thus far in the reading of God's word from Romans, and we will take up Reading from the Belgic, obviously not the inspired word of God, but a explanation of what God's word teaches on this topic, the topic of the civil government. Article 36 says, We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them, 
they should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government and pay taxes, and hold its representatives in honor and respect, and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word, praying for them, that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways, and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency." And on this matter, we denounce the Anabaptists, other anarchists, and in general, all those who want to reject the authorities and civil officers and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. You'll notice that there is a footnote to this article. I am not going to address it this evening. This article was changed from its original reading. You can read it there. Again, I won't be addressing that this evening. In Article 36, we make a transition into the Belgic. We're near its end of the 37 articles of the Belgic. Article 36 takes up the topic of civil government, a topic that most Christians might question and say, well, how does this relate to the gospel? How does this relate to Jesus Christ? And our reading from Romans 13 shows us that it is part of our obedience to God. Part of our submission to God himself is submitting to governing authorities. And so it is very relevant, very relevant that we as the church would talk about civil magistrates and rulers and our responsibility to them as God's people. This doesn't step away from the spirituality of the church as we see it in The Belgic, as we see it explained in our doctrine, here is the Reformed understanding, the Reformed presentation of how we relate to government. This was relevant during the time of the Belgic's own writing. You see that reference at the end of the article to the Anabaptists and other anarchists. The Reformation was trying to distance itself from radical groups that opposed civil rulers, that actually rebelled against them and had insurrections where they would overthrow the rulers. The Reformers were saying, that is not us. We are distancing ourselves from them. We aren't the Anabaptists that hold to these things. It was relevant at that time to explain it. But it's important for us. It's important for us because we are under God's lordship and the rule of Christ. And since we are under the lordship and the rule of Christ, as Romans 13 makes plain, we should see our submission to our authorities and civil rulers as our submission to Christ himself, to God on the throne who has placed these rulers there. And, of course, this is not always easy. And of course, there are questions on how to always do this correctly and appropriately, but Romans 13 gives us that strong call. And if we're not to follow it, we disobey not the civil magistrate in his office, but Christ on his throne. And that's why this is important. Tonight, we're going to talk an awful lot about the government. But underlying everything that is said is this truth. So here's the point of the whole message this evening. We have the obligatory privilege to honor God through honoring civil authorities. We have the obligatory privilege to honor God through honoring civil authorities. Now, why do I say obligatory privilege? Those words don't seem like they should go together. 
We have an obligation, right? There's no other way around it. We are, we are commanded and thus obligated by God to obey, to respect, to submit to, and to honor those in authority. But it is a privilege for us to do this. And I think this is where we need to hear it. And I put myself in that same group. We as Reformed conservative Christians, I mean conservative in the religious sense, not the political sense, but often those correspond. We as religious and reformed tend to have a rather dismal view of the civil magistrates in the world. We are always judging them for what they are not or what they are doing, and so often are heavily critiquing of them. And yet we see that obedience to civil magistrates is indeed a privilege. It's a privilege because through obedience to them, we're obeying God. And if we can wrap our minds around this, even through obedience to them in their own acts of, of injustice, in their own ways in which they abuse us, I should say, we're actually honoring God by submitting to that abuse. We have the obligatory privilege to honor God through honoring civil authorities. And we do this by, and here's our points, understanding the good of civil authorities knowing the sphere of civil authorities, and glorifying God in our conduct towards civil authorities. You see, this topic, how civil government relates to us as a believer, is important for we are the representatives of Christ and duty-bound to obey. We are duty-bound to obey his word and to submit to authority, seeking his kingdom through an impeachable and unassailable witness for how we honor our authorities tells the world something about us and our character and the witness we bear for Christ. And so it is a privilege to obey this command, for in obeying we bear the witness of Christ, and sometimes that witness shines all the more when it is in our own lack, when our own suffering at their own hands. We can see our witness go forth. And so we would be even willing to suffer abuse for the sake of his name and his glory. Now, I don't mean to say that every question is easily answered about states and their governments and who is to be obeyed and what laws are legitimate, when to obey and disobey, what revolutions are acceptable. These things can get complex, but the guarding and underlying principle of all of it is what Romans 13 says, a very strong call and direction to obey. And to honor. And if ever there is to be a disobedience to the government, it ought to be and must be where they have overstepped God's own law and called us to do the same, where we sin against them. You can see that it's complicated. Again, I said I wasn't going to address it, and I'm not, but you can see it's complicated in the very fact that the Belgic has a footnote. You don't come across those really, but it was understood differently at the time of the Reformation or given a different flavor than what later synods decided and saw that perhaps it could be misunderstood in its original reading. This is complex, and yet a call that we must, must obey and seek. So our first point, how do we understand that obligatory privilege, understand the good of civil authorities? The first good of civil authorities is restraining lawlessness. Restraining lawlessness. God has established civil governments for his good and the goodness of his people, for the benefit of mankind. And that's seen clearly in Romans 13, verse 3. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And largely speaking, that is the case. 
Every government oversteps. Every government does what it ought not to do. But at, at the end of the day, the government is in place to punish wrongdoers, and that is what every government on earth, though with abuses, has to do to even remain a government. Again, I'm not saying they're all perfect, but as a government, they are, in, they are set in place by God to punish the wrongdoer. And through the natural revelation of God, through the general revelation of God, it often does correspond to what is right and true, not the way it ought to be or should be, but in the way that God has ordained it to be. And so they do punish the wrongdoer. They are a terror to bad conduct, protecting the, the life of their citizens, protecting private property and those rights as well. There is no worse position for a society than anarchy. As the Belgic says, God wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained. The government has been established by God. Verse 1 of our text in Romans says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, remember... This is Paul who wrote this, and Paul was not blinded by some great government. And he wrote it from that position that there was such a great civil ruler in place, and so he would say this sort of clouded in his own experience. This was the Apostle Paul who, by those governing authorities, experienced lashings and beatings and experienced lawsuits, and ultimately, as church tradition would say, his own beheading at the hands of these civil magistrates. So in calling us to obey and honor them and the specific institution that was in place then, we see it's not on the morality of their own characters. It's not that, well, you obey good governments and you obey good governing authorities. No, you obey those God has put over you with that understanding that even our own abuse at their hands is used by him for our witness, for the witness of Christ, for the honor of his name. It's easy to submit to and honor the governments that do it right. It's much harder to do that to those that aren't. And yet, there you see how much more glory is given to God to submit even to them when you find yourself at their, at their, at them attacking you. You see that glory given to God. And so, the first good that we need to see from the government is that they restrain lawlessness. The second good of the government is that it establishes order. It establishes good order. Romans 13 and verses 3 and 4 mention how the civil ruler is one who promotes good. The Belgic phrases it that the government functions, that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. What would a nation be without order? without rules. Anarchy is the worst form of, I'm not going to say government, but the worst situation to be in. Where there is no order, there are no rules, there is no punishment, there's no one to look to. In fact, a tyrant is better than anarchy. A tyrant is better than anarchy. There is an ordering, there is one put in place who is at least called to enforce these laws and has the right to do what we can't and have no right to do. So the order established by the government. We like to critique the doings of elected officials. We portray them as fools and useless, and though there may often be truth to the way that they conduct 
business and to the way they rule that isn't fitting or in accord with God's way, and yet we need to obey God to recognize their authority and to honor it and to thank him that even our authorities, as, as bad as they may be, are a protection and a help to the good governing of society itself. The third good of the government is the use of the sword. The use of the sword, we see this. The Belgic says, for that purpose he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. This is a reflection of God's word. Romans 13 verse 4 says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We don't possess the sword. The family doesn't possess the sword. The church doesn't possess the sword. It is the government that possesses the sword, and someone needs to. There needs to be an avenger. There needs to be one who can put into place that ultimate punishment and bring in the full weight of the law and punish what is wrong. And so the sword has been given to them by God. And again, we may not always like those who possess it, but God is the one who's given it to them to exercise it. Not everyone sees the use of the sword as a good thing. There are those who think that capital punishment, that war is unjust and wrong, but that's not the case from what God's word says. This is why the Reformation were not pacifists. They were not those who said you needed to distance yourself from all war. They were not those who advocated getting rid of capital punishment. In fact, in obeying God's word, we see that capital punishment and war, as fearful, as sad as they may be, are not only allowed in Scripture, but mandated in instances as well. The use of the sword, he's given them that sword, an instrument of wrath, an instrument of execution, an instrument of death, and they possess it for the good of the society to restrain evil. The government did not create the sword, but God equipped them with it and uses it for the necessary tool of carrying out their duty. The family was given the rod to discipline. The family is given that rod to discipline and, and to, to nurture and guide their children by that corrective rod. We don't, as a family, have the sword, and they don't have the rod of discipline for your children. That's a different sphere, and we'll get into that. But they do have that sword, and it belongs only to them. And so the good of society is that third point of the sword and their use of it. And fourth, the good of a government. It advances the society's pleasing to God. It advances the society pleasing to God. This might not be an idea we usually associate with government. If you read the Belgic you were probably surprised at actually the role it gave the civil government in regards to the church and to the gospel itself. And that's what we get into our second point, knowing the sphere of civil authorities. The Belgic says that the government being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society, and it says that is pleasing to God. A government is duty-bound to advance a society and to do it in such a way that is pleasing to God. They don't have their own mandate. They are not outside of God's control. They are not outside of God's rule. They are called to advance societies pleasing to God. When they do not, they are in violation of God's word. It doesn't give us a right then to just disobey and overthrow them. They will be answerable to God for their failures in this regard. But there is a greater authority than the civil rulers and the civil magistrates, and it's God himself and he tells the governing authorities to rule in a way pleasing to him. 
And then the Belgic says something very important, that civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. You see, the government does have a task related even to the Great Commission. And the governmental task that they ought to be fulfilling is to be ordering and ruling the society in such a way that justice and peace are maintained so that the church may go out, so that order is established, protecting the people of God in that way so the church can flourish and spread. The civil rulers are not outside of God's law. They are subject to God's law. They are not outside in their own kingdom doing what they will. They are subject to the law of God. They are to operate in accordance with the will of God, albeit in a different way than the other spheres. This means that the church has the, the power of the keys of the kingdom, the power of preaching, the, the ecclesiastical task of church discipline, of excommunication. The government doesn't have that, nor can they take it. But they have a right to rule in accordance to God's law and maintain the society, even to maintain the Ten Commandments. Now, we have to be careful what we mean by that. What do we mean that the civil government is duty-bound to uphold the law of God? Well, here's what we mean. That in their sphere and with the authority that God has given them, they are to exercise themselves underneath that. And I think the best way to explain it is to give an example. Under each sphere of rule in a society, you have the church, you have the state, you have the family. Those are the three primary spheres. Well, those spheres are all under God's law and must obey it. And let's take as an example the command to not murder. Each of those spheres is duty-bound to obey that law, but how they carry it out and their responsibilities to that law changes or is different depending on the sphere and authority you possess. For instance, the family's obedience to the command do not murder is, first of all, to obey it at its face value, that you are not to murder. You are not to murder your friends. You are not to murder your family. It's basic obey the very law. That's, that's in the sphere of the family. But it's also in the sphere of the family to see that the commandment not to murder goes deeper. It goes into to not cut down with words, to not murder with your tongue, as we talked about today. And so a parent in their sphere of authority as a family would understand to enforce that law of God and so discipline their children who are misusing the tongue, murdering those in their midst in that way. And so they exercise, according to God's law, the obedience of that law. The family instructs and, and, and gives punishments to those that fail it in its midst, its children. But now the church's application of that commandment is different. You see, the church is given the task to preach and proclaim that and to teach all about the commands of God not to murder. So it's a declarative function. It's an authoritative function on what is murder and the, the sin of that. It's also duty-bound to excommunicate and enforce its own form of discipline to those who fail in that. But you see, the church is not tasked with the sword. See, the civil government's response to that would be to enforce justice, justice and punish the wrongdoer and use the sword as a punishment to what's been done and to murderers. And so you see, all spheres, family, church, and state, are subject to God's law, but in different ways. Again, it's complex. 
It's not as simple as this makes it sound. There are a lot that has to go into this, a lot that has to be worked out. But you see, as the Belgic says, the governing authorities are responsible to God. They're responsible to to govern with what is right, and they are responsible to God's law itself, his revealed word of God, and not just simply what general revelation can show. They don't apply every rule. They are not a theocracy. They are not to take the situation of Israel, which was a theocracy, and apply it to its own. They are not to overstep their sphere. But, and this is really all we're trying to say, they have a part to play in the church's own mission. And that part to play is subject to God's law to rule the governing, the civil life and society in a just, orderly and way that is in accordance with God's law. That's the role that the government plays to remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel. And even as it says that they would do so and put and, and, and support what is the true religion. That's what the magistrates are required to do. They keep the peace, they establish this order, they do not thwart preaching, but they are aiding it in that way. And thus the Belgic says they should do this while completely refraining from every tendency towards exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them. But as it will continue to say, the government is tasked with doing this in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. I'm guessing that last point comes as a surprise to us, that the civil government would rule in such a way that every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Governing authorities will be judged, and those who have had taken up that position, they will be judged in how they have thwarted the commission or how they have allowed other religions to take place. Now, we're not calling for religious persecution. That's not what the civil government is, ta- government is tasked with or given a right to do, but they ought to rule in the way that the churches spread and even bless through their rule. The Belgic doesn't call for the blending of church and state, but rather it does call for their mutual work in accordance with God. Is this always achieved? Of course not. The Belgic isn't saying, this is the way it's done, folks, and it's good. No, it's giving the ideal. It's giving what the government is called to do. And what is encouraging to us is it shows that even the government, and especially when it's a wicked government, They're not getting off without any punishment. They're not getting off without justice, I should say. There is a reckoning. There is a greater authority than them. And so even their abuses will be put to right. And so we have then the confidence. We have even that greater expectation that we can honor them, even when they're not what they should be, because God is the avenger and we are not. We're simply called to submit to him by submitting even to these often wicked men, these often unrighteous men and women. And yet through it, we glorify God. And that's our third point. Remember, 
The point of the message is we have the obligatory privilege to honor God through honoring civil authorities. And we see that we do this by understanding the good of civil authorities. We looked at that. We see that we have to understand the sphere of civil authority. And now we see that it is glorifying God in our conduct towards civil authorities. What's our conduct? You know, we might ask, but doesn't their abuse nullify our call to submit or to honor them? No, as John Calvin said, For private parties, it is not permissible to raise tumults or take the business of governing into their own hands. Even when kings fail in their duties, the citizens have no right to rebel. This, however, does not leave Christians without hope of deliverance. God in his wonderful goodness and power and providence at times raises up some of his servants as public avengers and arms them with his commission to punish unrighteous domination and to deliver from their distressing calamities a people unjustly oppressed. What Calvin is saying there is we don't have the right as individuals or even groups of individuals to take the law into our own hands and overthrow a government. No, but Calvin does say that in the Lord's providence and sovereign rule, he will at times raise up other legitimate authorities to come and so overthrow and punish those who have overstepped or who are misusing their power. And thus, all overthrow of government isn't wrong if it is done through the legitimate governing authorities or those who have been given that power. They can, and God does use them to overthrow what is unrighteous. But how do we personally live in this way? And here's where I really want us to focus. We were establishing all the background, but in light of the fact that all of that's true, how do we live as individuals? We're to honor our civil authorities. I want to give a couple examples. Think of Daniel. Daniel lived in Israel and was exiled. He was ripped from his home and his family and taken to Babylon, and he was forced into the the public life of Babylon. He became a public figure. He became even an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar himself, the great Nebuchadnezzar, but the very wicked Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, a man known for his cruelty. History recounts his cruelty and how he would treat captives in the war. He was, he was one of the most powerful men on earth and also perhaps seemingly one of the most wicked. And how did Daniel function with him? In Daniel chapter 4, after Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of God's coming judgment and asks Daniel to interpret it, you know what Daniel doesn't do? It's about time you're out of office. Ha! We were waiting for that. You're a wicked ruler, and it's, it's come upon you, and your judgment has come. And good riddance. You know, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar who threw Daniel's three friends into a fiery furnace. This is the same ruler who set up a gigantic idol of himself and told his, the people to worship him. What does Daniel say? in interpreting the dream of a coming judgment, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. 
What I like about Daniel's words here is you see, he doesn't just patronize. He doesn't just say what would like to be said. And he exercises even the proper use. And I'm going to put the church here with Daniel. He exercises the proper use of the church in declaring to the magistrate, stop sinning and do what is right. But he declares it and then says that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your own prosperity. You see, Daniel functioned in Nebuchadnezzar in a way that sought Nebuchadnezzar's own good. Nebuchadnezzar, he says, if you would like to lengthen your rule and that it would be more prosperous and that it would be a blessing to yourself and the people, repent of these sins. And it is a, it is a, a, a call that is coming from Daniel's own heart. Not to judge. So you see Daniel functions in honoring the authority of God by condemning sin as sin. But he honors the authority of Nebuchadnezzar by telling him it in such a way that is honoring and designed for Nebuchadnezzar's own good. Remember as well the example of David. Saul, the king of Israel, sought to murder David multiple times. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And what David would not do was kill the Lord's anointed, even when Saul was gift-wrapped and placed before him where he could have got away without any cause or backlash. And yet he would not strike, he would not lay his hand against the Lord's anointed. He respected Saul as the king, as one who was placed there as the king, even though he knew he would replace him. And he honored that authority. So we as well are called, Romans 13 verse 6 shows us what this means, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. We pay them taxes, we submit to them, we honor them. And our obedience, our responsibility, our conduct towards our officers is to honor and pray for them. And this is what we especially need to hear. We are to pray for them. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for our rulers. But we don't just pray for them, we honor them. We honor them. And it isn't easy, and likely all of us need to do better in the honor we hold elected officials. This doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't critique the injustice and in what they do that's wrong. We absolutely should. But we better be honoring them the way that Daniel did. Honoring the civil authorities, we as Christians who bear the name of Christ ought to be the best of any citizen. Nations should desire their, their people to be Christian and how well Christians obey and submit to the authorities, even in allowing their lives to be abused and perhaps even taken for the goal of spreading the gospel. You see how our main goal is not civil rights. It's not civil liberties. And it isn't constitutional rights. Now, I'm not making a commentary on how we apply the Constitution today. I'm saying sometimes we focus so much on our rights that we forget we are first members of God's kingdom. We should bear a greater thought to how does our conduct, how does our pursuit of politics even, reflect on Christ and our witness as opposed to what we have the civil liberty or rights afforded to us to do. 
that's more important. And we should honor them in such a way that if our civil, civil authorities were to hear us talk, they would understand this. The way Daniel spoke of and spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. If President Joe Biden were to hear all of our remarks, would they be those that do honor him, yet also appropriately bring God's word to bear? And I'm imagining for many of us, we appropriately bring God's word to bear and do it in such a way that it's very dishonoring to the man in the office. Why does it matter? Is our president worthy of honor in his character? Perhaps, perhaps not. That actually doesn't matter, was Nebuchadnezzar. No, we honor them because God has placed them over us. They fill a position, and so we speak to them in a respectful way, even if it means our words could lead to our death because of the biblical stance we take. Do we treat our civil authorities as Shimei did to David? In 2 Samuel 16, you read an account where David is fleeing the city, he is, there's a rebellion against him, and Shimei takes this opportunity to mock him, and as he leaves, he curses David. He calls down against him these curses, calls David a man of blood, calls David a worthless man. How often don't we call our own rulers, our own civil authorities, boy, that guy's worthless. That guy's a joke. It's not wrong to critique the bad that they do. But we are duty-bound to do it in an honoring way, in a way that gives God glory. And this is the joy of it. The joy of it isn't that, okay, I guess, shoot, <laughs> that takes away most of the way we could talk about our elected officials. No. The, the joy of this is that through honoring even the dishonorable, we honor God. You see, we are actually doing something with far more value than just helping our nation. We are showing honor to God. We are showing honor to Christ by submitting to his rule, honoring the men he has put in authority. Christ is honored in it, and in that we rejoice. We are the best of the citizens, the best of the nation, for we are those who live for God and underneath his rule. And in this, let us treat our authorities with the honor and respect that Christ calls us to in Romans 13. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see your call for us to submit to, to honor, to obey those you have put in authority over us. We pray for wisdom for we do need it. There is a difficult and often uh, a hard time in explaining when is it appropriate to do a certain thing or how much obedience is required in what situations. We know that takes wisdom, but we see in your word the call to submit, and it is such a strong call. We see in your word the call to honor, and we confess that it is here that we often fail. It is here where we often are not seeking the good of them in prayer. Perhaps maybe we check that off a list by bringing them before you in prayer and then thinking and speaking of them in such ways that is dishonorable. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom to navigate how to correctly critique that which is wrong and to speak about that in a right way and also to, as Daniel did, honor his authority. Help us do this not so that we could be blessed 
Not just that the, the nations would love us as your people, but that you would be honored as we submit to your name. We pray this for your honor and glory.